Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to our eighth episode of Doc Talk. And uh, I'm Captain Jeff Monroe, the Director of Education for the International Association of Maritime Port Executives. And I'm here with my co-host, uh, Amy Andrus, the Executive Director of IRPT, the Inland Rivers Ports and Terminal Association. Amy, so nice to see you again. Oh, thank you so much, Captain, and you as well. It's always wonderful. And I guess you've been suffering through some uh, awful heat there in the Midwest. Uh, summer has finally arrived in maine so uh it's uh it's a beautiful 74 degrees today with a light sea breeze and it gets down to about 50 degrees at night and don't we love it that does sound wonderful we have been scorching here in the midwest with some just very powerful storms uh popping up here and there so it's just been it's been a, a wild and crazy summer i'm glad to hear that you are not scorching up there though well we were bikes as you know the temperature got all the way up to 80 here last week and uh we were right frightened up here of course we don't have air conditioner in maine we have new england air conditioners with your wind fans so window fans so that's how it works for us so tell me amy what have you been doing uh in the last couple months well, you know, the, so the last time that we were together, Jeff, actually the last time that we, you know, filmed our doc talk or um, invited our guests, uh, we were actually together in Portland. So I thank you again for your hospitality on that. And it was wonderful to get to see, you know, my fellow, you know, board of advisor members that served, you know, alongside with me at the IMPE as well as the education committee. And I was super thrilled that we had our first ever guest speaker. Um, but since then, you know, I left Portland, I finally got a flight out and headed over to the Lake of the Ozarks that same week and hit the agri agribusiness conference in Missouri. So Missouri has an agribusiness uh, conference that meets each year. So got to go and just listen to some of the challenges and the great opportunities regarding agribusiness in Missouri. How has the river levels been in your neck of the woods with all this hot weather and everything and, and what looked like to me uh, some, you know, not a lot of rain? So on the Missouri River, uh, according, you know, to some of the movers and shakers a couple of weeks ago, we were operating a little, we were light loading just a bit. We were light loading about eight foot six inches in our barges, but we're still operating as normal. We're keeping the the, the nation fed, we're keeping the commodities moving and the supply chain strong. Well, that's great. Uh, you know, I think that it's always interesting that some of the very more common issues that you all face there on uh, the inland rivers and also within the Midwest and everything, not dissimilar to what we're facing, of course, we just saw the, uh, the whole uh, aspect of the roadway trucking, uh, yellow freight uh, go under. Uh, they've declared bankruptcy and everything like that. And and what's interesting is that there's such a shortage of drivers that uh, 30,000 people will be put out of work with this collapse of this major trucking company, which has been around, what, 100 some odd years. Um, and uh, it seems like the predictions are that a lot of them will be absorbed into the system because there's uh, such a shortage of drivers. It's heartbreaking uh, to know that you know, all of those families are being impacted. All of those shippers that have been faithful uh, customers of Yellow Freight or Yellow for Yellow Trucking for so long that they may be impacted. 
Uh, I feel like the good news is that, you know, our ports and our terminals, our river and our rail, we're ready to soak up some of that business and, and keep the nation's supply chain strong. Just like I said, we're here to serve those shippers. So if there's a way that we can connect those shippers that are going through some of this turmoil with that provider, we're here to help. Well, that's been great to see that. And, you know, it's, um, uh, I know that uh, you've got a very heavy travel schedule getting around to seeing folks and stuff. Um, you know, I've been doing a little bit of traveling, trying to stay a little close to home, but I was up in Canada, of course, um, and we had a great program up in Canada, and uh, it was a international program, so it's a little different than what we present in the continental U.S., but uh, we're going to be doing a similar program in the British Virgin Islands, and I understand our producer is absolutely committed to making sure she's going to be at that program uh, when we <laughs> run that off, so that should be nice. Uh, but, we, you know, we've seen a few interesting changes. Uh, CSX, of course, has purchased all of the assets of Pan Am Railways, uh, which was formerly known as Guilford. Um, and it was a Mellon uh, organization. Uh, and what I found was interesting is that we were already seeing improvements in the system. It was, a, you know, Pan Am was sort of a small regional railroad, but we've seen a lot of things that have been expanding there, which has been interesting. Uh, and actually, I, for the first time, I think it's going to provide an interesting connection to Canada because, as you know, we're moving cargo down the coast from Canada. But now with more efficient rail connecting to the New Brunswick Southern and to Moncton and the CN system, uh, this is, uh, may create an interesting change for the way cargo is moving up here in the Northeast. And of course, in your neck of the woods, um, Canadian Pacific has taken over Kansas City Southern. Uh, so uh, that's going to make some changes too. Yeah. So, you know, our, our class one railroads are heavily investing into their, their infrastructure. Um, and we think that that is going to increase um, the, the service offerings that those class ones can provide. They're looking at their bridge structures. They're looking at their, their rail as far as their ballast and, and making improvements so that uh, positive train control can move forward so that they're, um, their speeds and their safety is is aligned with you know what our nation is demanding at this point. So I am really excited about all the infrastructure investments happening. I I would love to be as encouraged. I feel like as you are to hear that you know because of CSX you know purchasing you know the Panaman uh, Railroad. I, I I'm not sure what that name was. Um, Pan that the Pan Am. Um, Pan Am, is that right? Yeah, just like the airline. Oh, okay, all right. Well, you know, you sound very encouraged that the service is going to be better and that there's going to be more opportunities um, for growth and freight and for the shipper with CSX purchasing them. And I hope that's the case. Um, not, not a whole lot of our shippers have been able to say that the class ones have been the best to work with and for, right? So... Uh, I will take um, your encouragement to a new level and, and show some, some positive shining light on this. Uh, well, if I was from Missouri, I guess we would say, you know, show me, show me the, uh, what's going to happen. Uh, I'm not necessarily sure of that, but I, I do see a lot of new investment, a lot of new movement. Um, you know, certainly uh, the GNW has picked up a large amount of infrastructure, short line railroad infrastructure. Um, and the Patriot Rail has expanded their operations. Uh, Watco's expanding their operations. So I think in the long run, you know, as most of our listeners know that our railroads and our trucking companies are our competitors, but they're also our partners. 
you know, and if they're efficient, if we're efficient, uh, in essence, it's to the benefit of, of all of our shippers. Yeah, absolutely. So, and you mentioned the shortline railroads. And so those shortline railroads really seem to be the buffer, right, between the shipper and the class one, really trying to, you know, meet the need of the shipper while uh, serving, you know, their, their kind of like their tenant, right, the class one to which that shortline leases from, making sure, you know, the investments can continue today, tomorrow, and into the future based on the service offerings that the class ones give to the shortline railroads and vice versa. So I'm very proud of our shortline members that are that are being the buffering system between the class ones and the shippers for the benefit of freight, for the benefit of the supply chain, right? Well, I think, uh, you know, the railroads have finally seen the wisdom of dealing with uh, hub movements, you know, where you're going from one hub to the other uh, and where they're building much more volume, uh, much bigger unit trains. You know, you're looking at uh, container trains at two and three miles long and stuff. Uh, and they have sort of uh, t- uh, thrown off to all of the short line railroads a lot of the freight that they used to handle in small areas. So, you know, you won't see, you know, a, a CSX a locomotive going into a small shippers area, but you will see the short line serving that, serving their needs. And exactly. I think that's been part. And I think, you know, we're going to see, we see that in the maritime world, certainly on your system, you know, you have a lot of freight moving down uh, the river system, which uh, then connects in your gateways, you know, such as uh, the Port of South Louisiana, uh, the Port of New Orleans. They're building their new facility in St. Bernard Parish. Uh, a lot of people confuse that because they don't realize that the Port of South Louisiana, this 54 mile stretch of port, which was the largest tonnage port in the Western Hemisphere, uh, now the second largest behind Houston, but I think they're going to crawl back, um, is different than New Orleans. You know, that's a different port system down there. Uh, so, but they have been traditionally, they collect a lot of cargo the way our rail hubs and our trucking hubs do. Yeah, absolutely. Just call it short line railroad of the river, right? Or short line river. <laughs> um, <laughs> I might adopt that, um, no lie. But, you know, so right after the agribusiness uh, conference that I went to at the lake, um, I actually spent the week in Denver, of all places. Here's this river girl going to Denver. And it was quite interesting. It was a Southwest Fertilizer Conference, bringing in producers and brokers and suppliers and firms, transloaders from all over the world, um, talking about the movement of freight, the movement of fertilizer into our country so that we can then you know, um, what do they call it, Um, feed the farms that then, you know, create the harvest that we then transport the goods for, for U.S. consumption, but as well as international consumption. It was very interesting, you know, getting to learn about some of their successes and their challenges, getting to meet those producers and, and hearing about all of the wonderful expansion plans. I think that is probably you know, what fuels my fire this day, these days is hearing about all of the expansion opportunities and plans and how do we get there? And I know that firms um, in our membership and yours alike, you know, with HDR and BAA and so many more are offering those opportunities and those services to firms who are looking at expansion. A lot of us have that big vision in our head, okay, we want to take our or maybe our 200 acre facility that serves this, this, and this. And we wanna make it this big conglomerate that now can can offer this, this, and this, and this. But how do we get there? 
we need those trusted firms and those trusted providers that know the regional opportunities to leverage then against the federal opportunities. It's just so exciting for me. Have you seen a perceived shift in um, since with all of the interruptions with fertilizer movement out of Russia and the grain movement out of Ukraine, have you seen an increase in the Midwest there and along the river system uh, that uh, is indicative of really uh, people thinking differently about supplying the world's needs for, for food and for increased agricultural production? Believe it or not, I haven't. And I, th I really thought I would. I really thought that we were gonna see a huge um, monkey wrench in the system when Russia and Ukraine started their their kind of battle, right? Because of you know the the ingress and the egress, the the access to the ports for export, et cetera. And I think our administration saw that as well, or anticipated it anyway, because the USDA actually came up with a program that is helping boost our US production of fertilizer. So they're saying we don't want to be reliant upon foreign countries for our sole source. What can we do to increase um, you know, our own reliance on our own American products? Yeah, and I think uh, in the long run, it's not the production side of it as much as it's going to be the transportation side of it that's going to maybe hinder the availability of these commodities and the agri-products agri to, uh, you know, the final marketplace because, um, you know, as we continue to see just these little minor disruptions, you know, everybody has been very comfortable thinking that, well, gee, you know, we don't hear much about the supply chain anymore. It's it's more about, uh, you know, <clears throat> what's, what's happening in Hollywood. Uh, and I think in the long run here that, uh, you know, it's because of the decreased volumes, decreased spending. Uh, these things have had a big impact on, you know, the amount of commodity demand. Uh, and that has eased the pressure on the transportation system. It hasn't fixed it, though. Hasn't fixed Agreed. it. Agreed. What I, one of the things that I find, you know, kind of really fascinating about that whole thing, you know, with the with the fertilizer coming in, here we are in this whole kind of infrastructure era where the administration has has invested and injected tons of funds, <laughs> get it, um, into our system for infrastructure investment. But what what goes into that is concrete, cement, clinker, and aggregates, right? We are a net importer in the United States of those commodities. About 60% of those commodities are imported into the United States each year. So making sure that our producers overseas, our suppliers of these um, different commodities, whether it be fertilizer or concrete and clinker, et cetera, they have access to the ocean going vessels that they need in order to import it into the United States. For a long time, the access to um, the vessel itself um, seemed to be um, projected as a scare, right? They were they were fearful that because of the the uh, the ship that got stuck in the the Suez uh, Canal, when when all of that happened, you saw different uh, and during COVID, mind you, you saw a lot of uh, big box shippers starting to kind of gobble up our bulker, our bulk tankers, right, and start converting those over into kind of container handling ships. But in doing so, when they did that, they took away the capacity for those bulk loaders to come into the United States. So it was a, a big fear that the aggregates and the, and the dry bulk world would not have access to the ships that they need to bring over to the United States. 
We got to keep in mind too that bulk ships are generally, um, you know, the the lowest charter rate uh, of all of the vessels out there right now. And you know, as the bulk fleets have disappeared, uh, or they've been gobbled up for other activities, or have been put on long term charter and stuff like that, that's put, brought the rates back up a little bit. Uh, but there are a number. It's still the largest number of vessels that are out there right now are the bulk vessels. Um, it's the bulk oil vessels that are creating, you know, sort of the constraint because, uh, you know, they're they're getting fewer and far between because there's so many of them in transit right now. And of course, there are a lot of them are using for the, you know, put the oil in them and then use them for storage and transit as they're moving and stuff. So it's managed to have an impact. And of course, we see that in the way the rates are changing and, and the production is changing and stuff. But but I also found that um there seems to be a lot of innovation in different areas. Like right now, the big feeding frenzy is the wind wind production, offshore wind production. And uh, you and I had had a conversation, if I remember correctly, over a cocktail uh, related to, uh, oh, come on, you can admit it. <laughs> and uh, we were talking about what a, what a great idea would be to build you know, components of offshore wind on different parts of the river system and then bring them down and then, you know, find places in the, you know, in the <laughs> Gulf of Mexico, you know, that now that those fields are opening up. And it's interesting about it is I happen to be talking to uh, a good friend who's the port director in Albany. And he was telling me, he says, that's exactly what they're doing on the Hudson River. You know, they're making component parts in different places, taking it down to, to uh, Brooklyn Terminal, right, where they're going to be assembling everything. So they're actually doing, you know, what we were talking about uh, in regards to, you know, component here, component here, component here, component here. So uh, I think Rick Hendricks up there uh, recognizes the value of the river system. Hard to believe, you know, most people in Albany probably, <laughs> rec yeah, they recognize they're a river, a river port. Uh, but, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that they're building these components. And I think that's going to open up because the bigger issue that a lot of people haven't really kind of groped with is the fact that we're going to put all this offshore wind production and all this huge kilowatt capacity and no place really to plug it in that isn't <laughs> going to be able to absorb the capacity. I was afraid you were going to bring that up. I think that's what our, our conversation was when um, over a couple of drinks. But <laughs> a lot <laughs> of things have changed um, since you and I first talked about that, right? So, um, you know, at that at that time, the administration, um, the Biden administration was was really kind of sinking a lot of investment funds into this new green energy type of infrastructure, this offshore wind farming. Um, at the time when you and I were talking about this, um, it was it was kind of only happening kind of in the you know northeast and now they've opened up the opportunities to do this in the Gulf Coast. Also at the time, there was not an outlet to uh, recycle, reuse, um, discard of the old components. So you have all these wind blades and farms and, and components that go into it, but there was no way to discard of, you know, old pieces. Well, now there is. Um, so I, I'm pretty excited about that because, you know, that, that to me was like, you know, <laughs> what are we going to do? Right. But using the river system and what you and I were talking about was using the river system 
to get some of these massive large components I don't know if you've ever stood underneath one of these, you know, massive wind things. Um, my daughter wanted me to stop uh, one day going along the interstate so that she could go and stand underneath it. And she, um, but anywho, they're massive, right? And so have you ever seen one of these like on a flatbed truck driving across the interstate system and, and what an impact that makes to your general public and communities trying to transit to back and forth to work, to the grocery store and to school? So um, having the ability to ship those on the river system can be totally beneficial uh, for our country, for our citizens, et cetera. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that. And I think part of the reason being is that, first of all, you know, when the wind farm plans first came out, and I've, I've done a couple of these uh, BOEM applications and Coast Guard analysis oh, uh, applications uh, with uh, various uh, firms, um, and in the midst of all of that, the units are smaller, they produce less power and stuff. But one of the things that became very apparent was that, you know, the number of these units had to be reduced, you know. And so what's happened is they've gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. In fact, at our AMPE conference uh, in um, October uh, up here in Portland, Maine, two of the topics are going to be preparing your port for offshore wind, you know, and the aspects of policies that lead to offshore wind development from a state perspective. And I think that uh, what's been interesting is that we're seeing fewer towers, but higher, much higher capacity. And at that stage now, how do you transport this stuff, right? How do you move these components? You know, we brought a lot of this stuff in from Europe and other locations, uh, and now we're producing it domestically, and it could be very easily produced up on, up on the river system, you know, in any of the 38 states that your river system hits. Uh, and uh, and we're seeing that already, you know, in places like Albany, where, you know, component pieces are being assembled down in Brooklyn, you know, and coming down a river. Absolutely. And so there are actually several programs uh, right now in the federal um, funding stream and realm, federal funding world, um, that are helping manufacturers, you know, locate into some of these almost kind of distressed communities. Um, they're offering um, tax credits for domestic manufacturing uh, and, and others through EDA and EAA, the Economic Adjustment uh, Assistance, um, and through the Economic Development Administration and so many more uh, different programs. So it's, it's quite interesting to see. Yeah, I think one of the things that one of the advantages that you have on the Inland River system uh, is the fact that you have more space available for development than we do on the coastal side. Uh, you know, you start looking at, except maybe in the Southeast, but you know, you start getting into Northeast, every square inch of space is, is occupied by something, you know, and you know, we're seeing the development now, much more of uh, inland ports and stuff like that. You know, Ch Chattanooga has an inland port, you know, the great Appalachian port, which is actually in Georgia, but you know, as part of their, part of the elements of what they do. And I think the recognition is that improving the transportation system that gives shippers many more alternatives and options. And one of the disadvantages of part of your system on the inland rivers has been the fact that the sources of materials are not always near the river system, right? Now, this gives a great opportunity to create that manufacturing because everything is coming together in parcels and pieces and everything. And I think the reality is, is that all of our ports, coastal and inland ports, can all take advantage of this on how this is managed and how this is handled. And quite frankly, I think, you know, one of the issues that like Crowley and some of the other Orsted and some of the other companies are running into uh, is the fact that they're looking for prime ports, you know, in the Northeast fundamentally right now, because 
that's where the the first farms are going in place and there's not a lot of space you know i mean obviously connecticut is developing theirs but that was a lucky find you yeah. know and of course salem you know they're hoping to catch up with that in brooklyn but you've got a lot more space in the gulf of mexico you know i do are... so so feel free to start giving my phone number out because i have about 430 members around the nation that would just absolutely welcome this cargo for sure <laughs> Your uh, your public phone number or the private phone number you gave me. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeff, don't forget, you know, the next time that we're together, it's going to be filming our live podcast at IRPT's annual conference in Louisville, Kentucky. We're going to do it over lunch hour in front of the, the, the big audience. And I'm going to be so excited to offer this to our listeners and to our viewers at home. I think that'll be great. And, you know, I think one of the things that for those of you who are, um, you know, listen to this uh, faithfully, and I know a number of you have out there said how, how you enjoy it. You know, I think it would be helpful that what are the topics that our listeners are interested in as well? Uh, we enjoy the conversation. We enjoy sort of unpeeling the onion to see really what's out there, you know, and I think in many cases, uh, it's been useful to see where the information uh, has come from because we're always tracking. I certainly track everything that goes on in the international market and I depend on you to track what's going on in the inland market. But a lot of that information will be available at, at your convention. It's always a very well attended and everything convention as I hope it will be at our AMPE uh, uh, meeting, you know, our conference in, in Portland, Maine. Great time to be in Portland. Leaves are changing. It's, it's a gorgeous area. <laughs> But, you know, the one thing I think that's been very good is that most recently people are getting a lot busier. There's a lot more activity. Uh, all of our, our port activities, all of our transportation system is picking up and people don't have a lot of time really to spend time going through all of the data and looking at all the sheets. And that's something that you uh, you do and I do in our respective organizations is to try to find the pertinent data that's out there and share it with our members, right? You know, we have about 4,000 people on our on our general list um, and we are just uh, getting up to the point where uh, we've had about just shy of 3,500 people who have had the honor and privilege of listening to my listening to me uh, speak at them <laughs> from undergraduate to postgraduate military and everything like that so uh it's been great from that standpoint uh, we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary at, at iampe in in february i believe it is so but the fact of the matter is is that you know we work hard for our members as you do for your members to to keep them in the loop on what's happening yeah absolutely well thank you again um, Jeff, for your time today, for your expertise, your friendship, uh, all of the above. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'll look forward to seeing you at the uh, IRPT conference where we can have another cocktail and determine to solve all the world's problems <laughs> as necessary out there. So hopefully everybody's enjoyed us. And we thank you all for listening in on in the program. And uh, we continue, we'll continue to try to keep these interesting because we know your time is precious. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, you'll join us. And if you have any comments, we'll look forward to hearing from them. Uh, Miss Amy, again, thank you as well. Thank you.